0: Today is January twenty fourth, two 2012, and my guest is William Black, professor of economics and law at the University of Missouri-Kansas City and the author of The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. Bill, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you. Our topic for today is bank fraud and what it can tell us about the crisis and what we might learn from it. Tell us to begin with about your background in detecting bank fraud.
1: It happened, of course, accidentally, like most things in life. I went over to the Federal Home Loan Bank Board on April 2nd, 1984, as their litigation director.
0: What is the Federal Home Loan Bank Board?
1: Well, it is two agencies ago. <laughs> it was the primary federal regulator of savings and loans. It was It has a successor agency, the Office of Thrift Supervision, which has recently been killed by the Dodd-Frank bill.
0: And what'd you do there?
1: Well, I did uh, what the title suggested. Uh, I was litigation director, and we had independent litigation authority, so we didn't use the Justice Department. Uh, And so at a very young age, I had a docket of 10,000 cases and then uh, budget for outside council of, a uh, hundred million dollars, which back in the day was a big deal. Um, but pretty quickly, uh, I became heavily involved in two other things, again, accidentally. We had a massive run on, um, the largest savings loan in America, American savings, and it was a six billion dollar run. Uh, this was not long after Continental Illinois had been brought down by a $6 billion run. And and I ended up on the uh, emergency task force. And so I was working with the business types and with the field folks. And supervision was really done in the field, not out of Washington, D.C. So I started learning a great deal about these institutions. And um, the head of the agency, had uh, undergone a remarkable transformation. Uh, he was a very, you know, reasonably close friend of both of the Reagans. Uh, appointed head of the agency because of that personal uh, relationship, uh, very strongly pro deregulation. Uh, but he had changed by this point and had decided to engage in significant re-regulation. And because of a chain of um, random facts, I ended up being the staff leader of that effort. And it's a combination of those things that led me into the
0: anti-fraud effort. Now, going back a little bit to uh, that case you just mentioned, uh, American, what was it?
1: American Savings, also known as uh, FCA, Financial Corporation of America.
0: And how was the holding company? How was that? uh after that run how it was shut down is that correct
1: no um and indeed that is part of this interesting story of fraud um it was um the it was a bit like lehman brothers uh in that as your listeners may know the sec and the fed had people in Lehman, uh, in its uh, final months of distress, and the Fed folks were from the credit side of operations, in other words, the potential lenders, uh, presumably looking at collateral. Uh, and the Fed, knowing that Lehman was in desperate shape, sent two people. The SEC did as well, by the way. We, from our Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco, sent 45 people.
0: To look at American savings.
1: To American savings, and they worked around the clock in shifts, um, going through uh, collateral and uh, made emergency lines available on the basis of uh, reasonable collateral and actually survived. A six billion dollar run, but use that leverage to force out Charlie Knapp. And in this era, these uh, the folks were known as the high flyers was the phrase within the trade, uh, who were doing what was perceived as riskier things. And the perception uh, about Knapp was that he was taking uh, severe interest rate risk in other words growing very rapidly with a tremendous mismatch uh investing very long term in 30 year fixed rate mortgages held in portfolio and financing them with
0: very short term uh deposits that sounds familiar
1: right so the the key difference is that the federal home loan bank of san francisco used its leverage as a lender to force NAP out and to bring in a new person, and that new person um, should, you would have thought, have saved the place because he immediately stopped the interest rate risk gamble, went to adjustable rate mortgages, not the modern kind in this crisis, but sort of good old fashioned, uh, fully amortizing adjustable rate mortgages, and... So he minimized interest rate risk, and they had virtually no defaults on these loans.
0: So you're thinking, this is great, right? Now getting back uh, to what, house, Right,
1: wonderful intervention, brought in new folks, saved the place, and what turned out was every quarter, the place lost money. And so this made no sense, and what we discovered eventually, uh, when employees started coming forward was be- was that, uh, they had missed entirely the major operation, which is, uh, what we call, uh, cash for trash. And when I say we call it as regulators, that's the phrase the industry used to describe it, and we simply adopted their phrase.
0: Now, when you say they discovered, what well, you said they missed, when you said they, who was that? Yes.
1: In, in this case, it was everybody. Okay. So the Securities and Exchange Commission had uh, prompted the run. I'm not blaming them, mind you. This is a good thing. But they prompted the run by finding a case of accounting fraud, um, by uh, American savings and forcing it to restate its earnings. But they didn't find the underlying larger fraud, they, the SEC, nor did the investors, nor did the regulators. Okay, and in what in was that case, fraud? And, the, and that fraud, as I said, was called uh, cash for trash, and cash for trash works this way. Um. So Charlie Knapp didn't simply grow rapidly. He made extremely high-yield, high-risk loans, uh, particularly commercial real estate. And of course, as you might expect with a guy like this, uh, these loans were frequently bad. And that, of course, would have caused tremendous loss recognition. So you come in to uh, American Savings and you've uh, you never developed anything. You say, I'd like to borrow a million dollars to create a strip uh, development, you know, put up a 7-Eleven. And the American Savings person would respond, the lender, um, loan officer type, sorry, we won't make you a million dollar loan, but we will make you an $80 million loan.
0: To a person who's perhaps never developed anything substantial ever.
1: Indeed, that would be the norm, and it would be the norm for good economic reasons, because if you're a real developer, even if you have no financial stake in the project, it's a non-recourse loan with no down payment, you still have a reputational interest. That can get in the way of what I'm about to describe.
0: Okay, so this this, by the way, is going to be uh, symptomatic of a much larger problem. So, for the, those of you listening, and you think we're delving into this particular case of American savings and this peculiar kind of weird transaction, this turns out to be kind of a unfortunately a template for a wide variety of behavior. So, carry on. That's so I, ex- I walk in. Way,
1: that's exactly right. So and I'm walking that was in. Key recognition
0: i 'm walking in i'm i 've never built anything in my life. I come to you American savings i say i want to build this this development, and um I know and you know it 's a loser uh it's it, it, this the place I want to build it 's overbuilt already i don 't have much of a track record, and your point was is that if I did have such a track record i, I wouldn't be so eager to build a lousy uh, development that would hold me back because I, I want to keep doing this. But if I'm a one-time kind of guy, I walk in. I want to borrow a million. You say, "Oh no, no, we're going to lend you 80. What would be the? How would that? What would? Be, why would that be a good idea?
1: Because I would have previously have made a loan for sixty million to somebody else, um, and they would be actually meet your description even more of the deliberately putting up a building that made no sense. And, of course, it would have gotten into trouble. And so the pesky examiners might be either have come in or you fear they're about to come in and say that the $60 million um, acquisition development construction, what's called ADC loan, is really only worth $30 million and you have to recognize a $30 million loss. And, again, foreshadowing many things we'll talk about, uh, all of these entities have virtually no capital in reality. So a $30 million loss is an amazingly big deal.
0: Yeah.
1: A few of those and you're gone. I'm gone, right. Right. So I don't want to recognize that loss. And so I, when I do this with a class I ask, so what do you do and yeah. after a lot of prompting they'll say, well I loan this new guy the you know Me. the one that comes in Me. uh that wants to build the 7 uh $60 million and he buys it for 60 million. You know, and that's the C minus answer. Because what you're really going to do, of course, is buy it for $78
0: million. So I'm lost. I'm sorry. I got confused there. So you've got a you've – got, you've got proj- you're a bank. You've Start got, you've got bank. one project you've already – that went sour. It wasn't it – wasn't, you didn't plan for that one to go sour. That just – it didn't turn uh, out right. You
1: didn't care. You were fairly indifferent to it going sour. So all of
0: a sudden, this stream of payments that you might have gotten is now not going to show up. And you're going to end up with a major loss on your hands. You're going to have to grab the property and the and this half-built building maybe or, or building that's been built but it's empty. And the guy says, sorry, I can't pay the loan, but I guess you'll take my land and my building, right? Is that – that's right, the first except thing.
1: Except that there is never been a stream of earnings.
0: Okay, right. You've never – right. there's nothing – you've never rented was, a single office yeah. in the building. And now I come in. I'm the second guy. And I say I want to build a 7-Eleven. I want to borrow a million dollars. And what do you do?
1: I loan you eighty million, and what, you keep two million as uh, you know walking away money, which is again what it was talked. So you're going to you're going to
0: give me you're going to give me eighty million dollars. Yep, I'm going to take two million of it for, to pay my salary as developer of right, <laughs> right. Yes,
1: for the the risk exposure of committing this fraud.
0: Yes, and what's going to happen? I'm, what am I going to do with the other seventy eight? I'm going to purchase building Who, wait a minute. A I room. I you or
1: me. I, the seven eleven developer.
0: That's me. Sorry.
1: I'm uh, sorry. You are going to purchase the the acquis- the big office building.
0: Oh I'm gonna oh I'm gonna use my seventy eight million that's left over to buy the to overpay for the bad thing you already built?
1: That's right. And I transform in my hypothetical, which is not a hypothetical a true $30 million loss. You had an original book value of 60.
0: And now you got an $18 million dollar
1: profit. Uh-huh. <laughs> and you would frequently have what was known as, you, the lender, American Savings, would frequently have what is known as an equity kicker. And an equity kicker would mean that you would get 50% of the net profits if there was a successful sale.
0: So, but how do I... There's that's really ugly fraud because I'm supposed to, right because I'm supposed to take the seventy eight you gave me and build the seven eleven. You say I'm not going to do that?
1: No, I, I you come in for a seven eleven. I say you forget. I tell you forget the seven oh. eleven project. Okay, that's not what we're going to do. You are going to get an eighty million dollar loan, and you I, keep two million of it as walking around money.
0: And I take the other seventy eight overpay for your lousy project, and then you. Then you then to the regulators and your books. You say we made profit on that on that first project because we sold it. We sold it to a guy. We lent the money to actually, and of course I'm going to default on the eighty million dollar loan now.
1: Eventually, but I'll refinance it three more times.
0: And so what you've done there is you've pushed the day of reckoning down the road with no hope of ever uh, having it be positive. And in the meanwhile, I've made two million dollars. You've made the equity kicker for uh, – you've pocketed some bonuses maybe and, and compensation for a good quarter because you had a big profit. Is that the idea?
1: Yes, and I have transmuted a real economic loss into a fictional gain. Remember, you, the pesky examiner was about to force me to recognize a $30 million loss, which threatened my ability to survive. And now, so when these frauds are dealt lemon, so they don't a, make lemonade, they make dumpernion.
0: It's, a, it's a Ponzi scheme, essentially, oh, yeah. right? It's, it's a, so it, it falls apart either when you run out of, well, I was going to say when you run out of people unwilling to participate, but there's always, um, does the person who takes the two, does the person who takes the $80 million loan and pockets $2 million, does, does he go to jail?
1: Eventually in the old days, yes. In the current system, no.
0: And he goes to jail because he has willingly participated in a sham transaction. What's the the illegality of what he did, what I did in that story? Yes,
1: excellent question. What you did, because back in the era I'm describing, we had actual rules. (laughs) Yeah. And the actual key rule uh, that helped make these prosecutions – was very simple, and it was one of those rules that economists could love, libertarian economists could love.
0: That's me, Bill. You know that.
1: It (laughs) said three things. One, you must underwrite a loan before you make it. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't do you much good if you underwrite it after you've already dispersed the money.
0: what What does it mean technically to underwrite the loan?
1: Underwrite is the underwriting is the process in this context of determining the risks of the loan, whether it should be made under your risk views as managers, and what the uh, necessary yield is—the uh, required return in our jargon.
0: So this is kind of a um, what we would. This is like a. Um, it's an assessment. It's it's the um, due diligence before you make the loan that complies with your regulatory framework.
1: No, is that this is the, the due diligence that you would do if regulators had never existed.
0: Oh, just the idea that you'd want to know what's going on.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. in other words, it, so to back up, if you don't do due diligence or underwriting in the lending process, we have known for centuries that you create acute adverse selection. Sure. And in the context of a mortgage loan, where the money goes out at the beginning, as opposed to credit cards, where it goes out in tiny slugs, yeah. to engage in significant adverse selection in the mortgage context is to create, as a lender, an intensely negative expected value.
0: And by adverse selection, you mean you're going to draw people who are bad credit risks or just going to be happy to live in the house for a while and then lose it?
1: Yes. In in this context, you'll get the worst possible borrowers, and because you do not know the risks, because you have not looked, you will underprice.
0: Okay, so let's get back to your sequence. So you underwrite. Okay. The, you have to underwrite the loan.
1: So you have to underwrite the loan before you make it second thing is you have to through the underwriting process establish that the person has the apparent ability to repay the loan yep and third you have to keep a written record
0: of this process those are pretty simple now the puzzle of course and we're going to come to this when we talk about the current crisis the puzzle is so why would anyone lend that money right why why would i ever want to create uh, a set of loans that would never pay off, that I know in advance are likely to not pay off.
1: Because as Akerlof and Romer uh, put it in, aptly in the title of their key article in 1993, looting the economic underworld of bankruptcy for profit, accounting control fraud is a, quoting them again, sure thing,
0: unquote. Well, it's sort of, and the sure thing there is that, is that, Is the sure thing that's with the Ponzi scheme, right? If I I have a bunch of sham investments that I finance by uh, continuing to roll over uh, and attract uh, new investors under a promise of a particular rate of return, say, uh, it's a sure thing until – it's not a sure thing, until I can't find those people anymore uh, in the case of a Ponzi scheme. And then I lose all my money and I go to jail. In the case of a bank – uh, this works for a while. I live a good life in the in the meanwhile because I've got a lot of um, uh, cash to play with that I can pay myself with. Um. I've got to be attracting money somewhere along the scheme, along the way. So I'm attracting deposits, say, which I'm using to finance these sham transactions and skimming off chunks for myself and my uh, the people I lend the money to. But eventually, there's a day of reckoning. So it's it's not it's not a very attractive sure thing. It's a, it's a sure thing until you get caught and then you go to jail
1: only if you go to jail and uh in as many economists uh, aptly said um again it's you know it's like all things in risk you have to make forward looking
0: there's un- there's uncertainty and at
1: times people were doing this nobody was going to prison for these things
0: in the in the 80s you're saying
1: in the 80s and of course now they most assuredly uh, if they're the elite managers don't go to prison in fact, right. they don't even get investigated in the modern era, much less uh, prosecuted, so, much less imprisoned.
0: So let's go deeper into looting. You just gave us a scenario where uh, – Right. The-
1: you asked me to explain what uh, the crime typically was, and that's why I was explaining the underwriting process. But for back, We are back to you, where you are the straw purchaser.
0: Right. I'm the straw developer.
1: Okay. And the crime is that for an $80 million loan, you're almost certainly going to overstate your income. Oh, I see.
0: There's going to be a literal fraud. It's not just that I'm faking it and pretending to be a developer. I'm going to have to have filled out some paperwork that shows that I'm not who I said I was.
1: And that's because we, in that era, had rules requiring this underwriting. And again… The key on those rules is we didn't go to best practices, we went to minimal practices that any uh entity that was going to survive as a lender would use. So they were pretty close to zero economic costs to this regulation. But it created a problem for you if you were to engage in fraud. And so you would what you would typically do is either put false information in the files or remove honest information from the files that would demonstrate to the examiners that you knew you were making a bad loan.
0: And that would clearly be the case on my side as the borrower. And on your side as the lender, you would go to jail for accepting knowingly accepting false documents or removing those things from the file? or
1: You would have been the person, just as in the current crisis, who would be encouraging and in many yeah. cases preparing yeah. the false yeah. financial statements? Yeah, you're not going to leave it up to the you know the unsophisticated person who's never been a developer to get the figure out what he right needs to right lie information. About.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so let's take a brief digression here uh, on ethics, uh, a topic that is uh, rarely rears its attractive head. Um, uh, you said in the profession, this was in the industry this was known as cash for trash and at that point people didn't foresee that they would all many of them some of them would go to jail for this procedure it, it's not a very nice thing it, it, it would sort of when you went home at night and talked to your spouse you, you'd kind of feel you know how was your day well i made another lousy loan it's doing great let's we're going to the we're going to tahiti this summer for a month how um how did these people how did this become the norm? It, and it was the norm. This is not like we, – we're talking about one particular example, but there were many, many banks in the Romer paper. I remember the Akerlof and Romer paper, which we'll put a reference to. It's a very important paper. It, there, there's, this wasn't like an isolated thing where someone said, hey, you know, maybe I could get away with this. It was widespread, correct?
1: Yes, the uh, Inevitable National Commission – to investigate the causes of the savings and loan crisis, um, the famous phrase is: "At the typical large failure, fraud was invariably present." Now, that that's the norm within the large failures. That doesn't mean it was the norm within savings and loans. There were 3,000 savings and loans, roughly, depending on you know the exact date, and we're talking about one tenth of the industry. But one-tenth of the That's industry of is enough to cause catastrophic losses.
0: And, of course, those losses continued to mount let – me, let me see if I can get the chain correctly. So I'm a savings and loan. I'm attracting deposits by offering nice rates of interest. I'm taking the money, lending it out along the lines of what we just talked about aggressively Um Having good quarter after quarter by this, what again seems to me like a Ponzi scheme, and the people who are ultimately financing it, although they look like the depositors are not really the depositors. It was the taxpayer who – because the S&Ls were FDIC-insured, uh, we were – the taxpayers were ultimately the funders of this fraud. Is that a correct way to describe it?
1: Uh, well – it was There was a separate insurance fund in those days, the Federal Savings Loan Insurance Corporation, as a technical matter. But yeah. uh, yes, the government was behind most of it. Uh, but don't forget, in terms of um, key stuff about moral hazard, the, the government wasn't the only entity. There were shareholders at most of the worst places, and there was subordinated debt at many of the most fraudulent places. And, of course, in economic theory, um, it was supposed to be subordinated debt that was the perfect form of private market discipline. Right. You that... had the right incentives, you had the sophistication, uh, and you should have done something, but there were zero cases of effective private market discipline by either shareholders or sub-debt
0: holders so uh, just... in
1: the savings <laughs> and loan crisis.
0: Let me just review that because and we've talked about this in, in passing in many, many different uh, podcasts, any episodes of this show. Um the debt holders have a fixed upside. Uh they cannot make more than they're promised. Their downside is being wiped out. So in general, they are going to be the watch guards of risk taking and the enforcers of prudence on the part of the people whose whose uh who are who they've lent money to through, these, through this debt and what I have been worrying about for a long time and it's a worry I learned from uh, Gary Stern's work is, well, that's true that under a market system, the debt holders are supposed to be the disciplines – the disciplinarians of risk-taking, the watchdogs. But if the shareholder – if the bondholders think that they might get their money back even when the firm goes out of business – uh, which happened with Continental Illinois in 1984, uh, you might start to not worry so much about that and be willing to accept a fixed rate of return even when there's a chance that the investment will amount to nothing because you might get your money anyway. Correct?
1: Um, true, but not basic enough. Um, in other words, you're quite right that uh, consolidated uh, Continental Illinois did a terrible thing, and it bailed out sub-debt holders. We never did that in the savings alone. loan. We always wiped out the sub-debt holders, and of course they're supposed to be wiped out. That's the concept of risk capital. Despite that, there was never effective private market discipline. Indeed, there was no even effort at private market discipline that failed by sub-debt holders during that entire crisis. And what I'm explaining, uh, with this sure thing and the creation of this record reported income hits the Achilles heel of the theory of private market discipline. So in the real world, if you're at the CFO of Enron and you're reporting record profits, you, your problem isn't private market discipline. <laughs> Your problem is that bankers are almost literally trying to break down your office door to get into you to lend you money. So as long as you're reporting record earnings, it turns out private market discipline is an oxymoron. The primary entity that loses money, as you aptly pointed out in the savings and loans, is not the shareholders, you know, because of the very thin equity. It's the creditors. Now, in the savings and loan case, yes, the ultimate creditor was the government. In most cases, but that's not true of the Enrons of the world. That wasn't true of the Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, Merrill Lynch. They were over. In other words, the entities that fund the accounting control frauds are overwhelmingly the creditors, who in theory are supposed to be the ones providing discipline instead what they mostly do is provide cash.
0: Right, so that's again the puzzle is why and and the answer it seems to me is that <clears throat> there there's two answers. One is they looked at the record profits, the good times and they were lulled into thinking that they would persist. I find that explanation unpalatable and probably false. Of course it's possible. It's possible that that you know there's this um animal spirits of exuberance that gets out of control. But these are savvy people. They've seen a little bit of the world. They do know that prices can go down, and assets do fall in value from time to time. It's hard to – and in fact, each of these firms had people in them, and that was their sole job was to worry about that and tap the other people on the shoulder and say, oh, oh, don't forget. And yet they persisted. They continued to fund those um, investments, and eventually, when they weren't – Turned out badly. They should have been wiped out, but they weren't. They got a hundred cents on the dollar. They were totally insulated from the market discipline that should have been in in place.
1: Well, it depends on w- what you're describing. Uh, in that's certainly not true in the savings loan.
0: Correct. I'm talking uh, about the current crisis. I'm talking about the uh, Bear Stearns creditors. I'm talking about AIGs. I'm talking about Merrill Lynch. Everybody except Lehman. Uh, the c- people who had funded the daily operations that provided that uh, – the the liquidity that let them make the bets they made were insulated from the failure. Well, again,
1: if you go a little farther back – because, again, you, this theory says, what do I anticipate? We had not been bailing out investment banks, and investment banks had been failing. And by the way, they failed primarily because of fraud. Um, and there were no bailouts. So if you if you go on what people supposedly would have been anticipated coming into this crisis, I don't buy the argument that they would have been very sure that they would be bailed out. The banks that facilitated Enron's fraud suffered significant losses.
0: For but, example, but the banks that that funded the um, escapades of the Mexican government in the mid nineties suffered no losses because the US government stepped in using the same argument they would use in this crisis, that there was risk of global instability, that Mexico could not default. No one needs to take a haircut. The US government will guarantee the the bonds that the um, Mexican government would issue to cover its past promises, and uh, it turned out they didn't lose a penny. So it turned out great according to the defenders of that policy. But the investment banks that had bought those Mexican bonds, that had issued those – had underwritten those bonds and been part of the stream of income that that they generated, they were made whole. And um, I think that's part of the problem.
1: I agree that that is part of the problem. I would again say they weren't really made whole except in a very nominal accounting sense. In other words, they were – Real losses suffered and Citicorp was next to death's door in a number of times. But I think with, where we all end up agreeing is the treatment of systemically dangerous institutions that allows them to hold us our economy hostage and produce these bailouts is completely destructive of almost any view of how an economic system should run.
0: So let's bring. Yeah, we're going to agree on that. <laughs> uh, so let's let's get to how the story you just told me about um, American Savings that in that era of the savings and loan crisis when banks realized that um, well, I, actually, let me ask you a different question before we get to the present. How do you get to a world? Wouldn't you rather make good loans? <laughs> So so why would you run around trying to make bad loans, and and why wouldn't that – in other words, why then? Because you'd think, well, okay, if this is a good trick, you should always do it. If it's not a good trick, don't do it if there's a better alternative. Why was it prevalent then? What kicked that looting off?
1: Well, what kicked it off um, was almost certainly the – first phase of the savings and loan crisis, which had nothing to do with fraud, uh, was the interest rate crisis. And, of course, the entire industry uh, ran on a system that exposed it to massive interest rate risk. Uh, Volcker uh, decided to break the back of inflationary expectations, um, created the double-digit interest rates, and uh, every savings and loan in America was insolvent on a market value basis. And collectively, by mid-'82, uh, of course, this wasn't realized for accounting purposes. But in real economic terms, they were in, the industry was insolvent to the tune of roughly $150
0: billion. So at this point, I'm running a bank, and I'm, I have made a bunch of – we did other podcasts on this we'll put links up to on the savings loan issue. But basically, the idea is that I have – to attract new money, which I need – I have to offer uh, a large uh, interest premium, but the money that's coming in for my old loans is very low. So I've got this is the mismatch problem, correct?
1: Yes, although I, you know, this is where they, I, I, the conventional economic wisdom, uh, turns out to be highly incorrect. But it it does create lots of pressures, and it creates a unique political opportunity. So the head of the Federal Home Loan Bank Board at that point is Dick Pratt, an academic, uh, very conservative, very libertarian uh, economist slash finance expert. And he creates the key deregulatory bill. Indeed, it was known as the Pratt Bill informally. It becomes the Garn St. Germain Act of 1982. And being a good economist, he tries to do it exactly right. And so he asks his economists, uh, at the agency, which of the states uh, has the best results, right? So this is Brandeis-like laboratories of experimentation. Uh, and they come back and they say, Texas. Texas is the place uh, where the savings and loans are reporting the best returns. And so he uses Texas as his model for deregulation, what becomes the garn St. Germain Act of 1982. The problem, of course, uh, that uh, he and his economists didn't understand is that the Texas Savings and Loans were doing what we've been describing in this podcast.
0: They were market leaders.
1: <laughs> yes, they were the market <laughs> leaders. They innovators. And uh, as a result, they produced over 40% of the total losses in the t- entire Savings and Loan crisis. And this is the fundamental problem with relying on econometrics during the expansion phase of an epidemic of accounting control fraud because you will inherently get not just the wrong answer in terms of policy you will get the worst conceivable answer
0: Yeah it's a it's a destabilizing feedback loop So right. so, so what what is I think trying to answer my earlier question, this kind of looting or control fraud occurs when I realize that my bank's dead, uh, that my assets are worth less than I had thought or less than I expected, my liabilities are greater than I expected, and it turns out they're much bigger than those assets. I realize that my bank is shot, and if an honest and diligent set of evaluators came in, they'd realize this also, and I'd be shut down instead, I cover up those that bad situation with the kind of behavior we talked about earlier, which allows me to sustain a um a, a personal lifestyle and set of 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 co- a package of compensation that's very attractive
1: and it's a sure thing, and no one's getting prosecuted, but here's the kicker to what you've just said. That describes one hundred shops out of three thousand. So back to your point about ethics and sociology, right? Mores. Um, if you had been a CEO, these things come from the C C suite, and you had worked at the savings and loan for thirty years, and you'd risen through the ranks, and you'd hired pretty much everybody who worked at your shop. This is a much less attractive strategy.
0: Yeah, you're, you've, you've got friends, you're in the community, you don't really want to be have people pointing to that grotesque bad development and say, oh yeah, he did that, right? That's right. You've and got, you're proud
1: of your place, and you identify with it. And so, in fact,
0: so most people it was didn't do that.
1: Extremely unusual for l- these folks, even though it appeared to be a sure thing. And so the uh, Larry White, this is the uh, NYU Larry White, as opposed to your colleague, yes, uh, famously writes about this episode. And, and he was one of the presidential appointees running the Federal Home Loan Bank Board for several years, saying the mystery for an economist. Is why there was so little fraud. Yeah, but, right, and not yeah. why there was extensive fraud.
0: I understand. So you can so debate the whether key ten... is entry. Yeah, is ten percent half empty or half full? Yeah. Go
1: ahead. No, no. But the key is entry, which is a you know a wonderfully fine traditional economic concept, forgotten by economists in discussing this crisis. So the fraudsters grossly disproportionately are new entrants, and they are overwhelmingly real estate developers who, are, who have who are funding themselves. Course, intense <laughs> conflicts of interest. Yeah,
0: funding themselves, yeah. Which That's is...
1: right. And they are frequently crummy real estate developers yeah. for the reasons we've discussed.
0: So they put out a shingle decl start a bank, start collecting some deposits, start lending themselves money for projects that aren't going to make it, and – um their depositors, of course, are going to get their money back as long as they're not too large, and even if they are, sometimes they do anyway. Um, okay, let's move to the present or the semi-present. Let's get up to 2008 uh, and and go forward, and I want to talk about, if we can, uh, Fannie and Freddie and the investment banks who were doing uh, – all of them were doing uh, something similar. They were generating – uh, they, sometimes on their own in the case of investment banks through, through their own mortgage origination shops. In the case of Fannie and Freddie, they couldn't originate loans. They could merely finance them and, and fund them and buy them. But both these groups um, were grabbing up mortgages, packaging them into securities and selling those securities often to each other, often to pension funds and people all around the world. What's the parallel – between that period of – which is really roughly 2003 to 2008 when it totally fell apart. What's the parallel between that period of of financial activity and the stories we've been telling?
1: Okay, so um, what we hadn't finished the logical link is deregulation – in the savings and loan crisis, the key event uh, that uh, is so fraud-friendly in terms of creating a criminogenic environment occurs in 1982, and re-regulation begins in 1983. So it begins very quickly, and therefore it's done in the face of unbelievably intense political pressure from both parties. Um, So that's a completely distinct pattern. Now, to understand the current crisis, you actually have to go to 1990, 1991, because that's when liar's loans become significant. And as with all good fraud schemes in America, it begins in Orange County, California. And it begins in large part at Long Beach Savings. And we are the regional regulators by that point.
0: You, um, who's we?
1: We are the Federal Home Loan Bank of San Francisco, and then it becomes the Office of Thrift Supervision, West Region. And we go and we look at it and we say, wait a minute, you're not going to do underwriting, and that's going to produce immense adverse selection. You're going to have a negative expected value. You have to lose money doing this. This is insane. This can only make sense as a fraud scheme. You can't do it. And so we use normal supervisory means to wipe out uh, liars' loans among savings and loans in Orange County in this era, whereupon they, of course, uh, they being Long Beach Savings, give up their federal charter, give up federal deposit insurance and become a mortgage banker for the sole purpose of escaping our jurisdiction. And they change their name, and they become AmeriQuest. And your listeners who are familiar with the story will recognize that name because it is the first big and infamous maker of liar's loans and other non-prime loans. And on top of that, it's a predatory lender that aims at minorities. Whereupon, they, after we crack down on them, and by the way, the leading competitor are two people, a husband-wife CEO team at Guardian Savings that we have removed and prohibited from the savings and loan industry, so they simply went to mortgage banking, which is essentially unregulated.
0: At the time, so that's
1: where so you have this era in 1990, 1991, in which you get hundreds of millions of dollars of losses from these loans, but they are pushed out of the regulated industry. There are two more crackdowns, including 49 state attorney generals plus the FTC suing Ameriquest. They settle for 400 million dollars, which at that time was a large amount of money. And we promptly make the CEO of AmeriQuest our ambassador to the Netherlands.
0: <laughs> what year was because, that? Because,
1: of course, he's the leading political contrib- yes. contributor to the president of the United States.
0: S- Strangely enough, he has a lot of friends. What, what, he
1: had a lot of friends. Actually, he had friends again in both parties. Yes, no doubt.
0: Just like I did and
1: Fannie yes, and, and Freddie. Uh, anyway, so that's the, what happens is overwhelmingly this stuff gets pushed at first out of the regulated entities. And so it becomes the mortgage bankers, and the mortgage bankers almost exclusively for the first eight years are dealing with the um, investment banking firms, the the big five.
0: But I'm I'm confused now. So... In nineteen early nineteen nineties, there are some firms who are lending money to people who are not accurately representing their ability to repay the loans. Right? No. What's a liar loan?
1: A liar's loan is you're correct. Involves false statements about income, but it is not the borrowers. It is overwhelmingly the lenders for the same reasons is in the savings
0: and loan crisis. Well, that's what I don't right. understand. So I'm Ameriquest. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm Long Beach to start yep. with, and I am lending money. I'm telling. I, we're reversing roles here now, Bill. It's going to be. Let's see if we get. <laughs> let's see if the if you and I can handle it. And the listers can handle. it. I'm Long Beach. You have um, you have a modest income. And you come to me, and you want to buy a house, and I say, no, 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 you, want, you don't want to buy that house. Here's a bigger house. And you say to me, oh, no, but I, I, my income, I, I can't afford it. No, no, don't worry. I'm going to lend you the money anyway as if you had the income of four times what you actually have. Is that a liar's loan?
1: That is a liar's loan, but that's not the most typical way that it's going to occur.
0: Okay, so tell me how it's going to occur. The typical way it's
1: going to occur first is through a broker. So yet another party has to be introduced to this. Go ahead. So to skip through, um, there is testimony in front of the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission that it was common for the prior job of the mortgage broker to have been literally flipping burgers. So I'm the lender. Uh, I'm sorry, you are the lender, right? <laughs> so yes, yeah, you're doing this. You're, you're Long Beach. Yep. You make the following deal. And, of course, you don't have to have a discussion. You just send out your daily term sheet to starting out with hundreds, but eventually tens of thousands of brokers. Ah, communications. It got cheaper. And the term sheet says uh, it creates uh, an optimization thing, right, that has three components. One, higher yield good. (laughs) You get a higher yield as a broker. um, I I give you a bigger fee. Okay. Two, um, and lower loan-to-value ratio. Very good. I give you a higher fee.
0: I give you. So I'm again. I'm I'm the lender. I'm telling my brokers, uh, don't ask for much money down. Uh, Charge them a high interest rate. And what's the third? Is there a third piece? No, 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 no.
1: You you missed. It's actually the. Opposite um, a lower loan to value ratio, so I want to oh, sorry, make sorry. it look oh, sorry, like sorry. Yeah, yeah. there's a, you've you've done a lot. Oh, sorry, and yeah. a also a lower debt to income ratio. Okay, all right. So those are the three things that we're optimizing.
0: Okay, go ahead.
1: As a loan broker, and to skip forward to the current crisis, as you know. Home prices in California are often very high, yeah, and so for what we call a jumbo, a six hundred to eight hundred thousand dollar range, you could get as a mortgage broker a twenty thousand dollar fee for one jumbo
0: to bring me the loan that the 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 borrower that that I'm going to make the loan to. That You're going to get twenty thousand. So
1: you want to incent people to bring you these loans in extraordinary volume with the ultra-high yield and then these two ratios gimmicked to make it look like the loan is safer. And the reason, of course, is you're going to resell this loan.
0: Who am I going to sell it to in 1991? That's what I'm wondering about.
1: Oh, we're going to sell it to uh, Lehman, and we're going to... See, all of the investment banks had... A non-prime, and at least one non-prime affiliate.
0: Well, they had their own mortgage originators, too, in the non-prime they, well,
1: world. Sometimes well, sometimes. They, Bear Stearns pre- they did. most frequently did exactly what I've described here. So Lehman Brothers, Aurora actually had very few loans it made itself, but it made um, – Hundreds of thousands of these loans, but this is nineteen brokers.
0: But this is the puzzle. This is this is what I'm confused about. This is early. This is not two thousand and three. You're saying this is nineteen ninety two. How does Long Beach Savings make any money at this? You're saying because they're selling them to investment banks. Why would they buy them? They're they're lousy. How's how's the? It's a sure thing. Well, that's what I don't get. How is the? Okay. How does so, this relate to the earlier story where there was a Ponzi like scheme that let me sustain an unsustainable situation for a while? Why is this yeah. a good business model in
1: 1992? Okay. So, um, let me tell you the fraud recipe. And for both a lender and a purchaser right. of these. So for a lender, it's got four ingredients grow like crazy. By making really crappy loans, but at a premium yield, and those first two things are related. But yield? With extreme leverage. Okay. And virtually no meaningful allowances for the future losses being recognized
0: currently. So how does how does Long Beach do that?
1: Through this loan broker process that I've been describing. So I, I told you the first two elements, the first two ingredients are related. I would, of course, love to grow exceptionally rapidly by making really high-quality loans.
0: But there aren't enough to go around.
1: Not, yeah, not only that, but this is, A, a mature market. This is not like iPads. And it's a very competitive market. And so what happens, let's do the thought exercise. I want to grow 50% a year, which, by the way, is what was the average Of the accounting control frauds by savings and loans until re regulation. The average one was growing 50% a year. That's exceptional growth, as you know. All right. So if I'm going to grow 50% a year by making extremely good quality loans, what do I have to do? I have to buy market share. How do I buy market share? I have to cut my yield. But in a relatively competitive marketplace, what are my competitors going to do? They're going to chop their yield. So at the end of the day, is this a good way to create nominal income? No, it's a terrible way. you (laughs) You obviously destroy nominal income through that process. But there are tens of millions of people that cannot afford homes.
0: They don't have the down payment. They don't have the credit record. They don't have enough income.
1: That is correct. And so I go to them. I have a huge number of folks that I can lend to. And here's what's even better. Where do as, I... as we, you know, we often have to spend a lot of our time with students explaining the fallacy of uh, composition, that a strategy that's good for one entity can't work typically for an industry. Right? If we all try to sell at the same time, the classic example of portfolio insurance, It doesn't work really well.
0: Okay, so go ahead.
1: (laughs) Okay, so uh, but the fallacy of composition works the opposite way when a bunch of us make bad loans because it turns out there are better places to make these loans, and that's going to be a combination of ease of entry, which assets are better for inflating values and hiding real losses, where is uh, the risk of prosecution the smallest, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and therefore you get clustering and you get emulation. What uh, Ackerloff and Romer talk about—the mimicking process.
0: So, in that it's an world, easy
1: strategy to emulate, right? Grow rapidly by sending these term sheets out to brokers.
0: Okay, so anybody the... can do it with no brain. Okay, but I'm I'm Long Beach now, and I'm and I realize that if i want to have a big institution i can't just compete like everybody else i can't just go to the good credit risks i have to start lowering my standards lend to people who are not normally going to get a loan who don't have the income don't have the credit rating and i start offering them loans that are uh, that i wouldn't that normally wouldn't get made so i have two questions and one is why do i do that and is the answer because I'm going to look like I'm generating – how do I – why is that good for me as the executive of the bank? Where, how am I looting the – where's the looting? Sure.
1: So I create three sure things to, again, to adopt Akerlof and Romer's phrase. The first sure thing is if I follow this recipe, I am mathematically guaranteed in the near term to report not just good profits but record profits, off-the-chart profits. 2 with modern executive compensation i will become wealthy and 3 if again if you think about that recipe i'm actually maximizing real losses real economic losses
0: so where do i get the money from to fund this escapade
1: so what they had because the money's they... got
0: to go out the, um, this this is not quite like the the earlier story right I've got to give money to people who are going to use it to buy houses.
1: Without deposit insurance, it is uh, harder to hold it in portfolio. You should not assume it's impossible, and Ireland should be your cautionary tale, where there was essentially no secondary market, and they did very similar things. Because it turns out you can expand, um, you know, uh, even in the Irish context. Okay, so, but back to your point. So how do they get the money? And so they had an originate for sale model. Now, as you've said, they are selling overwhelmingly to purely private parties. And neoclassical theory says it's impossible. They will exert private market discipline. In theory. Right. But we ran a real world test of the theory. And it turns out folks not only will buy it, but they will eagerly buy it and they will expand. So what's the formula for accounting control fraud by a purchaser of these entities? Well, it's essentially the same thing. Instead of the first ingredient, instead of make really, or I'm sorry, uh, second ingredient, make really crappy loans, I purchase really crappy loans. And I report Really nice yields. Now, can this keep going forever? Of course not. Can it keep going for a significant period, as in eight to ten years? Yes, if. If these things cluster and we hyperinflate the bubble. Because the saying in the trade is, a rolling loan gathers no loss.
0: Yes, it's right.
1: (laughs) Right. Right. And so I can refinance the bad loans, and I can hide the delinquencies for a decade. And again, we ran a real-world test of that, which that showed own, that's precisely what you could do.
0: My only defense of neoclassical theory is, uh, again, I think there was the potential expectation that this would not turn out as bad, as bad as it as it looked. But let me just again restate the idea. You're saying that if I'm Bear Stearns, Lehman, Merrill, City, et cetera, let's forget all the complexities of derivatives and CDOs and all this. I have a temptation to buy up really bad loans, put on my books an expected stream of earnings that probably and almost certainly will not materialize, but that's not known yet so i I put on my books that I have thirty years of of wonderful payments coming in uh because the historic default rate is a fraction of what it will ultimately be because that historic rate is predicated on a different set of people borrowing than are actually borrowing now and uh in the in the short run, which could be a few years, I make really great paper profits, but I'm not really. Standing over a uh, viable uh, institution,
1: right? And to quote someone who has been on your podcast, uh, you also create plausible deniability. And so here's what he said:
0: Who are you quoting,
1: Charles Calamiris?
0: <laughs> yeah, go ahead.
1: Asset managers were placing someone else's money at risk Correct. and earning huge salaries, bonuses, and management fees. For being willing to pretend that these were reasonable investments. They may have reasoned that other competitors were behaving similarly and that they would be able to blame the collapse when it ev- inevitably came on an unexpected shock. And then he says, you know, derisively, who knew? Yeah. Sarcasm. So, <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, Charles is, say, from. Pretty opposite side of the spectrum, uh, of me, um, and, uh, you know, of course, has also run a bank, uh, and such, and was, uh, l- perhaps the leading economist in the world, uh, urging internationally, uh, that you deregulate banks, uh, coming into this crisis. And, um, Bo McAllister, uh, who was at uh, Pincus Warburg? Um, here's what he said. By 2006 and early 2007, everyone thought we were headed for, to a cliff. The capital market experts I was listening to all thought the banks were going crazy and that the terms of major loans being offered by the banks were nuttiness of epic proportions. And here are the numbers. After the FBI warned in September 2004 that there was an epidemic of mortgage fraud and predicted that it would cause a financial crisis if it were not contained. And after the industry, the mortgage lending industry, own anti-fraud experts issued the following five warnings in writing in 2006, to essentially every mortgage lender in the United States. One, have you morons forgotten that we've done this before in 1990 and 1991, and it caused hundreds of millions of dollars in losses? Two, stated income loans are, and I quote, an open invitation to fraudsters. Three, the incidence of fraud in liar's loans is 90%, 90. Four, these loans deserve the phrase that the industry uses behind closed doors to describe them. They are liar's loans. And five, the banking regulatory agencies, and this is under Bush, are warning against making these loans the industry massively expanded the number of liars' loans it made, such that by 2006, the best estimates are that one-third of all the loans made in that year were liars' loans. And remember, liars' loans and subprime are not mutually exclusive categories. So by 2006... Half of all the loans called subprime were also liar's loans. And now, what is the key difference? I explained to you, we used to have rules on underwriting. In 1993, so this goes way back, under Clinton, they got rid of that as part of reinventing government. And examiners were instructed to refer to bankers as their clients. And rules were bad, so guidelines were in. And so there's now a guideline on underwriting. And a guideline is unenforceable. And so the absolute perfect thing for not creating a perfect uh, up a paper trail and no longer creating the dilemma about should I put false information in the loan file or should I take out honest information that shows I knew it was a bad loan the absolute perfect device for fraud is the liar's loan because you don't document you don't verify right Understood. and so the paper trail is much easier for fraud in the current crisis and then the the other key is we eventually developed a incredibly effective means of dealing with the frauds in the form of criminal prosecutions, administrative enforcement actions, and civil cases, and convicted over a 1,000 elites. These are not the little cases.
0: This is, in made, the, this is in the 80s.
1: Made in the 80s, and made well over, just our agency, made well over 10,000 criminal referrals. That, I mean, wait, well over 10,000 criminal referrals.
0: Um, well, that was unpleasant for those people. So now they, they found a new way to live. So
1: our agency, our same agency in this crisis, the Office of Thrift Supervision, made zero criminal referrals. And the OCC, the Office of the Control of the Currency, depending on who you believe at the OCC, made either zero or three. Yeah,
0: that's to zero. which the Germans would that. say,
1: drei mal is kein mal. Which means? Yeah, three is none.
0: <laughs> yeah, three is zero. So we're we're, we're kind of out of time, but it's so um, – this is so interesting. Let's try to finish with a conversation about what we agree on, what we don't agree on. So you and I might disagree about the behavior and the incentives that were in place. We might disagree about the strength of moral hazard. Where we agree is that by failing to prosecute – actual fraud, and by reducing the incentives for creditors to police risk-taking, we have certainly created an environment right now that is an unbelievably unhealthy situation. And I have to say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that when I'm watching uh, a football game, which I do from time to time, and I see an ad for a credit card – that offers this glorious rate of interest and all these special, wonderful things that come with it and all kinds of prizes and rewards. I'm thinking, you know, that reminds me of the savings and loan situation where you offer a really high rate of return to your depositors and then you just take the money and you do some really dumb things with it it doesn't really matter. What have we done... In the last four years, other than make this problem worse, and what should we have done I'm giving you five to 10 minutes for this bill. I know you'd like an hour, another hour and a half, maybe we'll revisit. Maybe we'll revisit it in another podcast. But what do you think we have done to fraud incentives in the last three or four years, and what should we have done?
1: Well, I agree with you fundamentally that we have made the world much more criminogenic. So, uh, you know, I have a doctorate in criminology, and this is what I primarily research. Why, why do you have recurrent, intensifying financial crises uh, brought on by these kinds of frauds? And it's a lot of the usual, the unintended uh, consequences, but here are the unintended consequences of doing things like deregulation and modern executive compensation. And, of course, I'm not unusual in this. Michael Jensen, the intellectual godfather uh, of modern executive compensation, says that he's created a Frankenstein monster of creating perverse incentives. So, first, deal with the systemically dangerous institutions. And here, the administration can't even be honest it calls them systemically important, like they deserve a gold star. But they are vastly beyond any efficiencies of scale. They are inefficient, we would make the world more efficient, and we would dramatically reduce systemic risk if we shrunk them to the size that they posed no systemic risk of global collapse. As long as they're this big, they are going to get away with murder, And worse, they will create a Gresham's dynamic. And this is something Akerlof warned about in his famous 1970 article on lemons markets, where cheaters prosper. Bad ethics can drive good ethics out of the marketplace. So that's our fundamental task as financial regulators, is to make private market discipline more effective. By getting good information out and by removing the cheaters who create the perverse incentives to match what I'm doing or die. So that's what we want. We want, A, stop the systemically dangerous institutions from growing because we're making it worse right now by uh, making them bigger. Two, we don't tell them how to shrink, but we give them five years to shrink. They can use their managerial judgment about how to do that. And three, in the interim, you regulate them much more intensively. Executive compensation is broken. Everybody knows it's broken. Everybody knows that what really happens with executive compensation has nothing to do with what we teach about how to align the interests. In fact, it further misaligns it. And if you want the expert, it's Frank Raines. (laughs) (laughs) It's Fannie Mae, who said famously, you know, if you wave enough money in uh, in front of folks, good people will do bad things. And that's exactly what happens, right? We can't, if you're Enron, think of how an Enron works. You can't send a memo to 3,000 Enron employees. Saying, you know what we'd like to do? We'd like to engage in pervasive accounting fraud because then we'll get rich in the interim and we'll walk away from the husk.
0: Did you go to but jail? But you can
1: send the same <laughs> message through your executive compensation, through what GE made famous as you know, uh, rank and yank.
0: Which All is... you have
1: to do is add one message. And that message will get around the firm within seconds. The message is this. We don't care whether your reported income is real or not. If you create fictional reported income, and Enron did that per- pervasively, then we, we will make you rich. So you've got to fix executive compensation. You've got to restore the criminal referral process, which was essentially eliminated in the regulatory agencies. You have to stop this proposed settlement, at least as it's publicly reported, under which the Justice Department purportedly is going to give immunity from criminal prosecution for frauds in the process of making the loans, which is overwhelmingly where the frauds occurred in vast dollar amounts. So those things you need to do. You need to reinstate the underwriting rule. Gu- uh, guidelines are the most useless at regulatory activity in existence. They are the nattering state. Now, let the me... people that are that need the rules will it- utterly ignore at all time your guidelines.
0: So uh, let me give a. Um... A political economy take on what you said I'm gonna add a piece to it and then I'll let you have the last word somewhere in the late 80s or early 1990s there was a, um, a feeling among politicians that America's home ownership rate was not doing what it should be doing It actually started in the in the 80s in the early 80s uh, and There was political pressure and good intentions to try to get the homeownership rate up. There was, of course, also political pressure to allow people to expand their businesses in the financial sector. And this is what Bruce Yandel has called a bootlegger and Baptist situation, where you have good motives mingling with really pecuniary and not so good motives. But I think a lot of politicians managed to convince themselves in both parties that if they could loosen the spigot on money going into the housing sector, they would be able to increase the homeownership rate. And so the kind of things that you were talking about and that we've been talking about in this program for a long time, changes in underwriting, changes in uh, requirements for Fannie and Freddie to purchase loans, uh, changes in how – Investment banks structured themselves. All these things came together to allow an enormous sum of money to go into housing rather than elsewhere. A lot of people managed to convince themselves that was a good thing, either because they were getting extremely rich, and that includes the builders, along with the financial sector that was the greaser of the wheels. Or because it was um, good for America to have more people owning homes than renting. And it blew up. It was an unsustainable strategy. Uh, It has created a hideous um, set of political and economic results. And it seems to me we've barely um, learned these lessons. What's your take?
1: I agree with most of the things you say except that I think it had almost nothing to do with the crisis. it's, I think, really naive to believe that um, any lender made loans because they thought it made politicians happy. Uh, lenders made loans because it made individual lenders. I don't mean uh, companies. I mean uh, people. Yeah. Uh, much, much wealthier. And they created those incentive structures not because they could care, uh, you know, less about people. In fact, of course, the leading victims, and I would guess we both agree on this, have been the working class people, uh, particularly minorities, who after all were put in vastly overpriced houses at the peak (laughs) of the uh, world's largest bubble, uh, and have had a devastating loss of their net worth. So, for us, we look, of course. Um, I'm, as so sure, I'm sure but Bill, you do. For- no,
0: but I got to interrupt you there. I'll, I think there there are a lot of tragic individual stories, but but many of the people who lost their homes never had any equity in them to start with. So th- their, their wealth was not wiped out. Their credit rating has been wiped out. Many of them didn't have much of a credit rating before, and it's a horrible thing to have to lose your house. At the, you know, there's an emor- enormous emotional toll on on folks. But it's not as it's not quite as bleak as you're making it out to be, right? Oh, actually, they,
1: I think the numbers no... will show that it that it is. You are quite right uh, that how much you put into a house matters. But I think you will find even with folks with no down payment, you know, which is sort of the extreme case. Well, there's a lot of those during
0: this period. In this...
1: There were many um, that they actually make very substantial investments, and you know, as a homeowner. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it it ain't just your down payment uh in terms of of your exposure. Yeah. So th- these folks, uh, you know, uh, you know many of them are in states that allow deficiency judgments uh, as well and we've changed the bankruptcy laws to be much less consumer uh friendly, particularly on first homes as opposed to second homes. But okay. let me come Fair back enough. to the more fundamental point. Like, I'm sure, I'm sure, you, we always, always are looking for natural experiments for what they can teach us. And liar's loans is something where no governmental entity encouraged them. In fact, the, even the Bush administration banking regulators, who were not fond of regulating, uh, consistently disparaged those kinds of loans. And nobody ever required Fannie and Freddie to purchase a liar's loan. They chose to do so, and they increased it massively. From 2003 to 2006, the number of liar's loans increased by over 500%. So we think this actually is a story driven overwhelmingly by what we call accounting control fraud. And we think, you know, no one much doubts that about the Enron era, And we think there's, you know, pretty good consensus on the savings and loan crisis as well because of all the factual record. I mean, we had to go up against the best criminal defense lawyers in the world, and we got a 90% conviction rate. Plus, we satisfied the economists that looked. You know, I quoted from the National Commission, which was run by economists uh, that concluded that uh, at the typical large failure, fraud was invariably present. But if you go and read the economic literature in this crisis, you will find that Akerlof and Romer are cited, for example, in maybe generously one out of a hundred articles that purport to discuss the causes of the crisis. And you will see that fraud is virtually never discussed as even a potential major contributor. And that is poor, and that is really the tribal taboo that still exists in economics against any serious consideration of the five-letter F-word, fraud.
0: My guest today has been William Black. Bill, thanks for being part of EconTalk.
1: Thank you so much for having me on.
0: This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty.